Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Southern Spectre Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah, and as always, thanks for listening. On today's show, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I have I have acquired some time ago, uh, I have acquired a book that was written about my hometown. And this is, this is a very informative book. It tells you about the history of the town. It tells you about neighbors and events and just a whole number of things that occurred during uh, that time. Um, now, the name of the book, I just thought I'd like to share this with you. I, I, I've read over these stories several times, and I just love these little stories. I think they're funny. Um, some of them are funny. Some of them are, you know, a little bit ridiculous. But I'd like to share one with you now. Now, the book is entitled Springfield, South Carolina, A Small Town Saga in Orangeburg County. Now, it's written by Jacqueline Williams Cooper, and she illustrated it as well. Um, now, what uh, this was actually, let's see here. I think it was, yeah, it was copyrighted back 1988, it looks to be. And uh, like I said, it has all these little things about it. It tells about the community and the surrounding area. And I just thought this was really cool. So I'd like to share a little bit about where I'm from with you guys. And I hope you enjoy this. Now, in the back of this book, it has a section entitled Legends and Tales. And I'm going to read a couple of things. So I want you to hang in there with me because I'm not too familiar where everything's at but i'll find it okay so first section we have is called wild things tales abound of sightings not of flying saucers but wild youngins in the river swamp oldsters declare there are those who have tracked them seen them running and swinging from branch to branch in the trees Some folks reckon descendants may have crept out of the Edisto mud and now run wild in town. In that book, I know I've probably got a lot of local listeners, but for those who are not familiar with the area, when it says the Edisto mud, our local river is the Edisto River. Most of us probably learn to swim on it as well. So, uh, let's see what else do we have here. Let me find a good one. There's so many, you know, and it brings back, you know, my memories as growing up in town and stuff like that. And I just, it just brings, just, it just reminds me of a, a time that is no more almost. And it, 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 it's sad in a way, but it brings me a lot of joyful memories. All right, here's another short one entitled, Believing or Not Believing. Local folk will still disagree about ghosts lurking in these parts, and the lines are usually drawn between those who've seen and those who haven't. However, there are several local eerie tales which surface around Halloween which should be recorded for history's sake, and luckily they have been right here in this book. So this one is entitled, The Ghost of Lamb's Hollow. 
Traveling back in time, the reader will recall the fight between Charles Lamb and Colonel Sprang during Revolutionary War times. These old friends became bitter foes when their loyalties divided. One pledged to the mother country, the other to American cause. After the chase through an er area which is now Bennett's farm and ending along a gully near Martin's Woods, Colonel Spring decapitated Lamb and the Tory's head rolled down into the gully. His horse galloped through the night and according to Springfield's best storytellers, still gallops even in 1987. Residents of Maple Street report strange happenings and unexplainable sounds from time to time. There is the appearance of the man in the green jacket who comes and goes in the wink of an eye. There are the sounds of running horses and jangling reins which awaken sleepers late into the night. Then there are accounts of a shadowy figure who appears sometime before death takes place. And all up and down the old gully, eerie echoes of the past reach out in moans and groans to tantalize imaginations of those who hear things. Well, I know once before I actually had a southern accent much thicker than what I do now. So... Uh, if you've ever seen the movie A Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which I have mentioned on here a time or two, that would probably be my best Jim Williams impersonation. Or maybe that's, uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, goodness. The name escapes me. Oh, I, I, I'll think about it. <laughs> the guy who plays the piano, um, I, one of y'all will correct me, I'm sure. Well, guys, since I brought up the book, that is exactly uh, what's on the agenda for today's show. And what I have here, I have uh, prepared the story, the show, the sketch notes, whatever you would like to call it. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get jump right on in this. So I hope you guys enjoy it. It's time to pull up a chair, settle in, and cozy up. For the Southern Spectre Podcast. Y'all enjoy now. Proverbs 12.18 says this. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 18.21 also says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. The tongue can be quite poisonous, or it can be the sweetness that even the honeybees envy. It can produce words and phrases that build up those closest to us, or it can curse our worst enemies. The tongue produces words and words can be quite powerful. If you write these words down in a specific order, you now have a sentence. And with enough sentences, you can carry on a conversation or even pass along information. Write these sentences down on paper, type them into a computer, or chisel them into stone. Now we have a book. 
Books can do so much for those that consume their pages. One can set sail for a swashbuckling adventure towards Treasure Island, or read the memoirs of a 13-year-old Jewish girl in Nazi-occupied Holland. Be on the lookout for clues and a demonic hound with Holmes and Watson, or experience true horror as a group of pre-adolescent British boys are forced to survive on their own on a remote island in the Pacific as chaos runs rampant. The possibilities are practically endless. And for those of us that do love a good page-turner, most of the time, the book is better than the movie. Books can educate, help us to create and develop. They call upon us to use our imagination. And we can even keep track of our own stories with a diary or journal. The Bible is the most read book in the world. And in the world we live in today, it's easy to see why. Over the last 50 years, the Bible has sold over 3.9 billion copies. Harry Potter takes third place with over 400 million copies sold. And sitting comfortably in second place is quotations from the works of Macy Tongue with over 820 million copies sold. Books have been used for centuries as a means to store vital information, even as far back as 668 BC, when stone tablets were used for writing. Along with libraries and proper shelving, people would protect their investment in books with a book curse. Dating back to pre-Christian times, when those trying to protect their books or scrolls would invoke the wrath of the gods by placing a curse upon the book usually located in the first or last page of a volume. Ancient libraries have held book thieves in the same regard as blasphemers and murderers. The earliest known book curse has been linked to Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, who ensured the following curse was on many, if not all, of the tablets that were assembled at the library at Nivea. I have transcribed upon tablets the noble products of the work of the scribe, which none of the kings who have gone before me had learned, together with the wisdom of Nabu, insofar as it exiteth, I have arranged them in classes, I have revised them, and I have placed them in my palace, that I, even I, the ruler who knoweth the light of Ashur, the king of the gods, may read them. Whosoever shall carry off this tablet, or shall inscribe his name on it, side by side with mine own, may assure and belit overthrow him in wrath and anger, and may they destroy his name and posterity in the land. Some book curses would be found to curse not the thief, but the owner, if they were to lend the book to those wishing to borrow it. The following curse, or something similar, could be found within its spine. He who entrusts this book to others' hands, may all the gods who are found in Babylon curse him. During the medieval times, book curses were used to vow harsh consequences on a book thief, such as 
excommunication, damnation, or anathema. Most medieval scribes could write whatever they saw fit, so most book curses began to become unique to each book. Steal not this book, my honest friend, for fear the gallows should be your end. And when you die, the Lord will say, And where's the book you stole away? Another curse that would be used during this time is the document curse. The document curse would be placed on specific important papers or documents that would protect the text held within. Often this would be used for such things as wills, grants, and charters. I mentioned before that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, and for good reason. We can look at the Bible as the official guidebook for those that seek salvation and eternal life, especially for those that truly believe. The book curse, much like the Bible, is likely to be more effective if the one who is subject to the curse is indeed a true believer. So if there is such a thing as a book curse, can there be a cursed book? A book that is cursed with so much evil that it brings pain, suffering, torment, anguish, etc. to those who merely own a copy? Let's take a closer look at some reportedly cursed books. John Dee was an Anglo-Welsh mathematician, astrologer, teacher, occultist, alchemist, and court astronomer, as well as advisor to Elizabeth I. As he was an avid collector of books, he owned one of the largest libraries in England during this time. Dee was highly interested in the occult and supernatural, so much so that he left behind his job as court astronomer to Elizabeth and headed off in search of knowledge unknown. Sometime in the 1580s, John Dee acquired a book known as the Book of Soiga, also known as Aldorea. Most of the book had been written in Latin, and so it was easy for John to read the book. Soon, through his readings and attempts to understand and decipher the book, John became a little obsessed. He had uncovered paragraph after paragraph that described spells, formulas, conjurings, and even names of angels and demons. John was able to decipher most of the book except the final 36 pages. Those final pages were filled with random Latin letters. John knew it was some sort of code, but he could never quite figure out how to crack it. John, along with a close friend, Edward Kelly, who was an English occultist and medium, are said to have made contact with the archangel Uriel. Using Edward as a conduit for this exchange to occur, John asked Uriel the meaning of the final 36 pages. Speaking through Edward Kelly, Uriel claimed that the book of Soiga had been revealed to Adam by angels when he had entered paradise, and that the book 
could only be correctly interpreted by the archangel Michael. Uriel also warned him that the book was under a curse, and anyone who discovered the meaning of the codes would die within two and a half years. John D. died in the late 1610s, and he never was able to decode those final 36 pages. Shortly thereafter, the Book of Soiga had mysteriously disappeared. Most historians believe the book to be stolen, destroyed, or lost forever. That is, until 1994. When American novelist Deborah Harkness had uncovered a copy of the Book of Soiga buried among heaps of other ancient books in the British Library in London. Deborah Harkness actually wrote a thesis on John Dee concerning his life and accomplishments. A few months go by and she actually uncovers a second copy of the rare book in the Bodleian Library at Oxford University. Upon its rediscovery, a number of cryptographers or code breakers immediately began the task of breaking the code of those final 36 pages John D. himself could never decipher. In 2006, cryptographer Jim Reeds had developed an algorithm on how to decipher the pages, proving that they contained terms of astrology, magical incantations, and even more names of angels and demons. Twelve years later, Jim Reeds is still alive after deciphering those 36 pages in the Book of Soiga. So did Jim Reeds actually interpret these texts correctly, or was something amiss? What if he just didn't believe? Could that have spared him from this curse? Nonetheless, there are those who are convinced that the Book of Soiga contains some sort of entrance or gateway to some secret, forbidden, possibly unobtainable knowledge. Our next book I'm going to talk about very briefly. I do not get the warm and fuzzies discussing it and if I were you I'd take extreme caution with how much info you seek out about this next book. The book is known as the Lesser Key of Solomon. The book was compiled in the 17th century and is actually five books that make up one. No one quite knows who the original author is. However, Alistair Crowley has his name associated with this one. If you know anything about Crowley, then you know he was not a good man. Once again, please take caution with things of this nature. This book is a grimoire on demonology. It holds spells and incantations on a number of subjects. How to create a talisman and even how to summon certain beings. Apparently the book comes with a very dark curse, which is oddly unknown, and no one is not quite sure the repercussions. However, those who have maintained a copy of the book 
claim to have witnessed such things as pages turning on their own, books flying across the room as if being thrown, hearing spooky whispers, and even seeing shadow people and demons. Once again, do not seek out this book. I cannot stress this enough. Our next book, The Voynich Manuscript, can be carbon traced back to the early part of the 15th century. However, it can be traced back to Wilfred Voynich, for which it's named after, back in 1912. Supposedly, it was purchased from Italy, where Voynich purchased it, but from who remains a mystery. It once belonged to Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, and it is believed that it has passed through the hands of John D. The manuscript is 240 pages, illustrated, and is written in an unknown language, making this book the most mysterious book in the world, as no one knows who wrote it or what it even says. Due to the fact no one can translate it, it's not necessarily something you want hanging about. Some believe it's a text brought to earth by aliens who put a curse on it, and whoever deciphers it and reads it will be cursed. Some of the illustrations that appear throughout the book are of plants, zodiac signs, creatures such as dragons, astronomical symbols, and even floating heads. Since its discovery, there have been those out there that have been attempting to decipher the undecipherable text within. The book is currently kept safe in the Benecki Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University. And in 2016, the first authorized copy of the Voynich Manuscript was published. With an introduction by Deborah Harkness, remember her? And composed of new photos of the original work along with expert essays, Yale University invites anyone to understand, explore, and attempt to decipher the mystery. In 2017, historian and writer Nicholas Gibbs claims to have cracked the code, believing the manuscript to be an early guide to women's health. Unfortunately, scholars have since debunked this claim, stating that the translation makes no sense. Then, as recently as June of last year, after a three-year deep analysis of the Voynich Manuscript, German Egyptologist Rainier Hannig claims he may have finally cracked the code. Rainer believes the unknown language is Hebrew-based. He has managed to translate a few sentences and says that to complete the translation, a couple years' work is in order. So who knows if we'll ever discover what lies within the Voynich Manuscript. And in my opinion, if it's that hard to understand, apparently it wasn't meant for our eyes to begin with. On this next one, we'll take a bit of a lighter turn, but nonetheless, this book is still considered to be cursed, 
and you'll soon find out why. The Orphan's Story tells the story about an orphan who ventures from Spain heading in search of adventure in the Spanish colonies. This book was originally written under the pen name Andre de Leon, way back in the 1600s, but it wasn't published until 2018. What would take a manuscript over 400 years to finally be published? Belinda Palacios was the editor on this book and decided to pursue it as part of her PhD. She let her professor know she'd be covering the manuscript, but he warned her that this manuscript was cursed. Of course, she didn't believe this until she actually was told the same thing from a professor at the City College of New York. The same professor informed Palacios that two people had previously died before finishing their editions of the novel. Palacios was determined as this didn't stop her. However, she did inform her best friend to burn the manuscript if anything were to happen to her. Others have studied the novel and its story as well, including Neil Messer, who says the protagonist is rather an odd character. He's a strong man and a religious man and a soldier. It's said he would crush walnuts with his bare hands, break plates over his head, and dent a helmet just from punching it. The main character of the story eventually takes his vows and becomes a monk, which has led those who know the story that the true identity of the author is Martin de Leon Cardenas, a monk who left Spain in search of adventure and then came back to become the Archbishop of Palermo. Since the book is officially published now, I wonder if the curse is still around. Someone read it and get back to me on that. Now, if I haven't made it clear enough already, a grimoire is just another name for a book of spells. So with that being said, back in 2013, just before Halloween, two handwritten spiral-bound grimoires were sold online for over $13,000. But the books came with a dire warning. To those not of the craft, the reading of this book is forbidden. Proceed no further, or justice will exact a swift and terrible retribution, and you will surely suffer at the hand of the craft. It is believed that these grimoires were written sometime in the 1960s by a high priestess Wicca known as Persephone Adrastia Irene, who was leader of her very own coven. One of the books is said to be a reworked copy of Persephone's mother's grimoire and contains hundreds of years of Wicca knowledge, spells, and resources. The second spell book is said to include recipes for chemistry, cures, perfumes, balms, tonics, liqueurs, and hairspray. It's also believed that Israel Regardi 
moved to the UK in the 1920s to work alongside Mr. Alistair Crowley himself. Israel's wife, Alice Montserrat, had the spell books, and from her, they made their way to M. Benjamin Katz's fine books and rare manuscripts in Toronto. Who knows where they may be now, and let's hope that those that bought these books were indeed of the craft. Ladies and gentlemen, the next book I am about to talk about is another book I wouldn't be doing too much research on or reading about. And above all, once again, I strongly suggest not seeking out this book. The Grand Grimoire, also known as the Red Dragon or Gospel of Satan, is said to be written by Honorius of Thebes an apocrypha figure who is claimed to have been possessed by the devil himself while writing this book. Because of this belief, it's also believed that this book contains extreme evil power and is regarded as one of the most potent spell books in existence. It's believed the original was written in 1520 but was found in the tomb of Solomon in 1750. The book is said to be written in Hebrew or Aramaic and is made up of four parts. Now sometime during the 16th century, another version of the Grand Grimoire was created and it's believed that it's this second book that is available for public viewing while the original is kept in the Vatican's archives. The original book contains spells, enchantments, incantations, and other spells to summon demons and even the devil. One other disturbing twisted tale about this book is that it contains how newly elected popes are manipulated until corruption and then fall at the hand of the devil. Another strong warning folks, be careful. Just as the Grand Grimoire is known as the Gospel of Satan, the Codex Gigas, which literally translates to Giant Book, but is also known as the Devil's Bible. The Codex Gigas contains the Old Testament, New Testament, and secondary works all written over decades throughout the 13th century by a single monk. The Codex weighs in at an astonishing 165 pounds. Legend has it that the monstrosity of a book was written in a single night by a single monk that had made a bargain with the devil. The monk sold his soul to the devil. In exchange, the devil finished the codex for the monk. It is believed that the monk was trying to write the codex as a means to pass along a book full of knowledge. But since the project was so slow, he called upon the devil to lend a helping hand. Of course, with most legends, this doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. 
According to ink and penmanship analysis, the book was indeed written by a single person over an extensive period of time. Some even speculate as long as 30 years. A few things that make this the most likely scenario. Number one, the codex contains detailed instructions on how to exercise demons from people and objects. Number two, there are two magic spells that tell how to identify and catch a thief. There are things in this book that paint the devil in a not-so-flattering light. However, one thing that still confuses researchers and scholars to this day. On page 290 is a full-page illustration of the evil one himself. This is only one of two pictures within the codex. The second image can be seen on page 289, which some scholars believe is an illustration of the kingdom of heaven. Some believe that this illustration of the kingdom of heaven happens to bind and cancel out the image of the devil. Whatever the case, it doesn't seem to be that this one is as evil as some believe, but you be the judge. Now, for the most frightening, the most wicked, the most evil book ever known to mankind, the Necronomicon. Not to be the bearer of bad news, ladies and gentlemen, but the Necronomicon doesn't exist. That's right, it's completely fictional, and it was made up by H.P. Lovecraft himself. And it was featured in one of his very first stories, known as The Hound. However, fans of Lovecraft were so in love with the idea of the book that a bunch of unknown writers took to writing their very own Necronomicons. And there were so many versions of these books published, all claiming to be the real Necronomicon. Sorry folks, you can't believe everything in a Lovecraft story? Or a Sam Raimi movie. I wrote your soul. <laughs> Alright ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for this episode of the Southern Spectre Podcast. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. I hope that you guys have been enjoying the episodes lately. I've been putting a lot of hard work into them or I've been trying to anyway. Um, I got some more episodes coming up. I'm trying to find some interesting things, you know. Um, I'm trying to plan some things. I don't want it to be like it was last year. I'm trying to come across a way that maybe I could go on a little bit of a road trip and maybe do a podcast along the way. Now, maybe we could do a meetup. Who knows? You never know. I don't know. You never know what lies in store. So we'll just play it by ear as usual. It is 2021, the year after 2020. God knows what holds it. So, But with that being said, I know there's a lot of crazy things going out there right now, you guys. And I hope that the Spectre here can be a place for you guys to come and kind of do a little bit of an escape 
away from reality and I know it's crazy out there um, but when it comes to people's safety and sanity um, I'm here I listen to myself on this podcast over and over and over again and being solo on a podcast it can be quite lonely not gonna lie but I'm here if you need to talk I'm here if you need a listener, so just please take care of yourself, take care of your family. If you would, uh, go follow me on Facebook at the Southern Spectre Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at the Southern Spectre, and just hold it down, guys. This uh, whole corona thing ain't over yet. I know it seems like it's, it's always darkest before dawn, right? Well, maybe we'll see some light at the end of the tunnel before long. I love you guys. You guys take care. And if there's anything you guys would like me to cover, talk about, do a little bit more, dig, you know, dig a little deeper on something, just hit me up. Send me a message. You can actually send me a voicemail through anchor.fm forward slash the Southern Inspector. So if you want to send me a voicemail and whatever, you know, I'm cool with it. So I love you guys. You guys take care. Hold it down. Be safe out there.